Welcome to the Nonprofit Power Hour with Jamila podcast. I'm so excited that you're on this new journey with me. Get ready to hear from grassroots founders as they share their startup stories of impact. And if anyone knows me, you know I love a good story. You'll meet my clients, other nonprofit founders, and hear from industry experts as they provide guidance and strategies to help you navigate this nonprofit space. I will provide training in some of the episodes as well. So come on in and invite a few friends. You never know, you may be my next guest. Hello and welcome to the Nonprofit Power Hour with Jamila. I am excited today to have our new guest on our newest segment called Educating the Sector. We have Mrs. Taikisha Boone joining us today. Hey there, Taikisha, how are you? Hey girl, I am good. Good, good, good. Oh, it's going, can't complain. It's a Wednesday. I done lost track of the days since we had a Mm. holiday on Monday. All right, so let's hop right on in here because I know we have a lot to share. I have my own pen and paper to take some notes while I'm doing this. I'm going to be doing some multitasking. So I hope you all are out there multitasking as well and taking some good notes because she is going to deliver a lot of good stuff today. Uh, So tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do what you do in these nonprofit streets, as you like to say. These nonprofit streets are full. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to lead into here. My name is Takesha Tyboon. I have uh, been working with nonprofits for a little over 20 years. Now I had a birthday not that long ago. So I'm like 20 something years. Now I've been working with nonprofits. I started my work um, in the university doing research and starting out writing grants at the federal level. Like my very first grant was at the federal level and then I kind of worked my way down and the reason why I worked my way down as far as writing grants are concerned is because I started to build relationships with community-based organizations and they weren't ready for federal funding so we had to adjust um, to be able to get them the monies that they needed but anyway uh, working in the universities allowed me an opportunity to see how partnerships work Um, there was a lot of community-based organizations at the time who wanted to partner with the universities, but we're not in position to partner. Uh, one of my jobs that I worked in the university was to help my, my boss at the time, we were doing pain research and we did a lot with HIV and things like that, um, to help community-based organizations who had that focus to get in on some of the grant monies that we had. So being able to go out there, um, partner with them, working with them, I saw a lot in the community as far as community-based organizations and the fact that they weren't really in shape So we had to turn down a lot of partnerships because the infrastructure wasn't together. Um, For those that we were able to work with, we work was the the key word. We had to do a lot of work um, with them to get them up to par and to get them on the the right playing field. You know, everybody wants to get into this money, but not everybody is positioned to do so. So having to work with them to get them positioned is kind of how I started um, with my passion for smaller community-based organizations. I went on after the university um, to work in some of those community-based organizations, helping them to fund um, their various departments with uh, mostly corporate and foundation type grants once we moved from uh, the university. And then I started consulting on my own. I came home after uh, working in in the field for a minute. I was teaching online. I taught at 13 different schools at one time at the same time one time Did um, you say 13 pub- different schools 13 13 at the same time I <laughs> thought I was and I did this for for a number of years I taught online for about 10 years 
Um, and at, at the height of it, I had 13 different schools at the same time. I taught in uh, the areas of nonprofit uh, development and public health health sciences, organiza community organization and planning, research methods, statistics. Those are the kind of things I taught, but I did that for a while. Um, and then just kind of while I was doing that, I just kind of refound my love for community-based organizations again. It's like, hey, I need to go back and try to, you know, go help these people again, because nothing was really changing as far as uh, the community goes and, and their ability to attract funding and attract it consistently. So then I started back consulting and here I am today. This is what I do for a oh, living. Well, we oh. are thankful for you. Um, <laughs> we, you have helped me a lot in this new journey on the for-profit side, which I already know that there are differences, but thank you for doing what you do. So as we all know, you know, at the university level, at the hospital level, you know, it's heavily mm -hmm. into the research part. And at that level, they have a solid infrastructure, but we all started somewhere though, right? So mm -hmm. if we could just take a moment here and let's talk about infrastructure. And I want you to bring it down to the grassroots organizations, founders who are just getting started or maybe they're within their first five years or so. What does that infrastructure look like? How do they start creating this infrastructure that is basically the foundation for building an organization to the likes of the AARPs and Susan G. Comins and Red mm -hmm. Crosses? Mm -hmm. I think what most uh, grassroots organizations miss is the needs assessment. And I think that they should, you know, what they're not doing is doing that first because we're leading with passion. We got passion on lock, right? That's the thing. Founders get here and they go, oh, you know, there's, I'm passionate about this thing or this is something that happened in my life. So I want to start a nonprofit. But that alone is not enough if you're comparing them with universities, the reason why universities get millions, I mean, I'm talking about millions of dollars a pop. I haven't even seen a grant at a university that was less than a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's like, why you? Why do we even bother with something that's less than a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? Wow, so well, give, like, me a hundred, give me a couple hundred thousand, I'll yeah. take it. <laughs> and the, the reason why you're getting funded at that level is because there is a need and, and the need is identified. Um, a lot of times we will get in as founders and we'll go, this is my need, my personal need. So I think everybody else needs it. And that's not necessarily the case. So at the, at the bottom of this infrastructure, there should be um, a solid needs assessment. Someone goes, going out into the community to discover whether or not this is even necessary. Should we be doing this? And if, if there's a problem or a cause that needs to be addressed, and the needs don't reflect that, then you really got to dig into some research. And we did a lot of that in the university, right? Research was the number one thing, because if there was something going on that we identified and the rest of the world had no clue about, we got to get our paperwork together. We got to get our statistics in order. We got to be able to correlate some things so that we can know that this probably is related to that so that we can make a good case for this support that we're trying to attract, right? And a lot of times we have new nonprofits who just can't make the case um, because that you know they haven't done the background research, hadn't done these assessments to know that whether or not this is going to work. The next thing is being sure that you build. You, I'm thinking about this church song. Uh, it's like my hope is built on nothing less. It's like make sure that you have a sure foundation. You know those songs mm -hmm. that go like yes, that. You want your foundation has to be solid. That foundation starts with a solid board. And sometimes as what, I've, what I was seeing out in the world with community-based organizations, especially grassroots, that the founder gets really 
protective of his or her baby. Mm-hmm. Really territorial, really protective, and they're like, "This is mine." And if I if I let go too much, somebody's gonna take it, and they're gonna kidnap my baby, and they're gonna <laughs> run with my baby, and then there's nothing I can do about it. I've lost control, right? Giving up that control to make this organization really, really represent a community-based organization, that's when you start to attract funds. Because when people are on the outside looking at your your organization and they see it as yours, they don't feel like they have to be a part of it. Because you don't own a nonprofit, but when you put it out there in the atmosphere that this belongs to me and you treat it like it is your property, nobody else wants to be a part of it. We're trespassing. Mm, you know, we're, we're not going to mm. trespass. We're going to, if this is a community thing, you invite the community into it and your board represents that community, right? Those people who are on your board, they represent people in the community who are important to the growth and the development of your organization. And when you start with this, you know, getting my family in here and getting all of my friends, because I don't want people to say no to me and we're going to do this. It looks like yours. You know, in the community on the outside, it's just like your for-profit business. That's Tyboon Enterprises is mine, right? If people are going to get something from Tyboon Enterprises, I have to sell it to them. They have to buy it, and I have to deliver something tangible to them in return because they want, they know what they want. They're coming in to get it, right? In a nonprofit organization, the thing that might be the, the that you're giving out might be the change in somebody's life or um, feeding somebody's family across town. So the donor may not even get to see that but because he feels like it is his and also you're just sharing this in the community you're pulling on those heartstrings and you're making him want to do it either way Mm -hmm. because it doesn't belong to you it doesn't belong to him it's affecting something that's way bigger than him you know so having that is i think that those are the things that are missing is at the grassroots level as far as infrastructure the board that environment the communication that the founder puts out there has to be Mm -hmm. together and of course programs you know programs and services knowing the difference between programs services and events and knowing what's appropriate to deliver when um programs are going to get you the funds they're going to get you the sustainability they're going to be long term because they offer a long-term solution to a problem when you're out here doing a bunch of events or you're doing a bunch of activities and you're not creating them to be programmatic you're 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 creating short-term it fixes to, to situations, right? Just short-term things. And nobody wants to get on and, and, and give you money for something that's going to be short-term. Right, exactly. So programs, services, and events, those are three completely different things. Mm-hmm. And you always say that programs are fundable mm-hmm. and services and events can roll under the programs, but services and events can't stand alone and organizations can't expect to see growth if they're just doing services and events and activities only. Is that right? Right. 100%. Okay. Okay. So there's something that I like to call the nonprofit startup recipe. Mm -hmm. So I think we have two ingredients already with what you said being the needs assessment, that environmental scan that's necessary Mm -hmm. in order to determine what solutions you provide as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. The second recipe is that solid board of directors, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to go down that road just yet. There is going to mm-hmm. be some training <laughs> that mm-hmm. I'll provide here soon yeah, to, you talk, got it, y'all. 
to talk about that. Yes, you guys can hold me to that. Um, but that's definitely important. And then the third part or the third recipe is programs. Is there anything else that you would add to the recipe? Consistency. Consistency. Yeah. And, and, and we sometimes we get tired, you know, and it's like I've seen organizations. I've, I remember making a post one day on Facebook and it just says, where you been? <laughs> you know, and that, that was like, where, like, where you, where have you been? Because you, you know, I saw you on Giving Tuesday. I saw you when um, you were having the birthday fundraiser. And then I did not see you ever again. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you need, but th don't come to me when you're only when you're needing something, you know, and this is, this is where the breaks happen when you're popping up for your fundraiser and I hadn't seen you three months prior. And then all of a sudden you pop up and say, can you donate to me for this fundraiser, right? Or we haven't seen you all year and here you come the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving for Giving Tuesday saying, you know, can you, can you donate to my Giving Tuesday? And I haven't seen you all year. Right. You have to be consistent. And I know you get tired and a lot of times we're applying for grants, for example, and you're like, I was rejected this grant funding this is in February. When I ask you in August, have you applied for another grant? You go, no, I didn't apply anymore because we applied for something in, in February and I thought we were going to get it and we didn't get it. So I just didn't do anything. So what is your, what is the audience supposed to do between February and now when you didn't apply for anything or you didn't, you, you didn't continue to fundraise or you haven't continued to create services, whether you are, are, are tired or not, the thing about a nonprofit organization is it doesn't matter if you're tired because you were formed to provide a service to somebody who is in need of a service every day. That's right. Right. In my, right now in Taiboon Enterprises, if I'm tired, I will take a nap <laughs> okay, right now. And I might reschedule. If you're on my, if you're in my calendar right now and I just really feel like I can't make it to Friday and sometimes I can't do it. I'm just like, Oh Lord Jesus. If I can just take a break. I may go into this calendar and say, hey, could you reschedule this um, to Monday? Because something is just not right. I'm not going to be able to do this, right? But in your nonprofit organization, and this is why teams are very important. And if you, if you don't have funds to pay staff, this is why volunteers are crucial to consistency. Because you, you're human. You might have to take a break. But that doesn't stop the man who is hungry from being hungry. He still needs something to eat. Mm -hmm. So you got, and a lot of us are just kind of go missing, like we go missing for months and then we pop up out of the blue trying to have an event or pop up out of the blue trying to do a social media campaign to get some money, to, you know, for, for something that we're trying to do or we're just, you just suddenly throw in a program and say, we want people to come to our program. Nobody's seen us. Nobody know how to get in touch with us. Where you been? Right. Consistency. Mm hmm that's good. Consistency. And I think that's synonymous with visibility because that's what I mm -hmm. hear you saying as well. You have to be yeah. consistent, but you also have to be visible because like you say, you know, you can't just show up twice a year and ask people for donations because one, they're going to wonder, well, where is it going? Because I haven't seen you mm -hmm. all year. And mm -hmm. two, are you really using the money how you say you're going to use it? So the consistency mm -hmm. and the visibility, I think they're right there on the same playing field. So do we have mm -hmm. anything else that we could add to the nonprofit startup recipe? Yeah, of course. You know, I always talk about systems. Um, I place systems into programs, you know, because there's, 
there's input, just like a computer, you know, there's input, there's processes, there's outputs, there's outcomes, just like if you were doing computer science 101, right? Mm -hmm. But knowing what strategies you're going to take, what strategies you're going to implement, that is also very important. So things like strategic planning. Um, I had someone to um, contact me yesterday and they wanted to, me to give them a template for a five-year strategic plan. And I was like, why? You know, why do you want a template? And this is, and I know old school, this is what we're, we've been taught, you know, mm -hmm. give us, give me five-year, five-year projection, whatever. And I'm like, well, who's on your board? And she says, well, I don't really have a board. And I'm like, okay, well, you, you don't get into five years of planning if you do not have, who's going to help you direct this strategic plan of yours? Mm -hmm. This Now you're bringing this back to becoming yours and not your communities. Because if, you, if I were to work with you on a five-year strategic plan and give you a guide for a five-year strategic plan, everything that goes into this plan in the absence of your board is you. Right. There's no community involvement. The strategic plan is to bring in the community, to bring in your board representation. So what we could do is an abbreviated plan because you ain't got a board. The first part of your, your plan is to get a board. That's the first thing that we right. have to put down on here. Like right, right. Your, That's the, the first, first strategy goal, right? Yeah, this is what you need to do first. So let's do a, an abbreviated plan. Let's, let's, let's do this at a one to three year, not a five year, because you're not ready for five year. Your capacity, even from where you are, your next level of best, and I always talk about your next level of best, and I'm, mm -hmm. when I'm talking about that, referring to capacity, right? Your next level of best is not this five-year thing that you have. Your next level of best is what you can do within this one year. So instead of telling me, yeah, we're going to have housing for 200 people and you don't even have a board, let's talk about how you can be a supportive care service. Let's talk mm -hmm. about that. Let's talk about first how you can refer people out to housing somewhere else because you don't have the infrastructure. You don't have the space. You don't have a board. You won't got no money. <laughs> so, right, so what are you right, gonna right. do? What are you gonna do this month to get the wheels turning in your organization? Because what happens when you do that five-year thing, she's coming in and all she's thinking about is that I need housing. I need this house in order to do my work. And that's not true. What you need is to network and you need to start bringing in some numbers so that the funders can wanna give you some money. Right now you have no clients to serve. So if you were to go out to Bank of America and say, I need the $2 million to build this house, they're going to be like, who's going to live in it? What's this about? What is this for? Mm -hmm. You know, but if you start out as a supportive care service where you have people coming in, coming to you, calling you, coming on the computer, you ain't got space. You're doing this in your car. People calling you saying, hey, I need an emergency shelter for the night. And you've built a relationship with the hotel across town and you know that emergency, they can get a room for $130 and you can, you can, okay, we can refer you over here. We got $130 that we raised. We're going to send you over here. Now you can tell the funder that, hey, I got 200 people a month asking me for emergency shelter. Hmm. If I had shelter to put them into, then it would solve this problem of me having to refer them to the hotel across town. Now when you're asking the funder for money to help you build this shelter, they know there's a reason. Your own data because right. of people that you're serving your supportive care. That's good. So out of systems, we have planning. And because mm -hmm. we have that strategic plan, we can build out what it is that we need and what we're actually asking for. So mm -hmm. as we find in this nonprofit sector, everything we do is interconnected in some sort of way. And it's a stair mm -hmm. step to the next level. And I like what you said. You said the next level of best. I think that can go on a t-shirt. So... <laughs> 
we can go in on that together. But also what I heard <laughs> in talking about <laughs> this nonprofit startup recipe is setting realistic expectations because while she came to you asking for a five-year plan, that five years wasn't realistic, right? So I think as founders, we have these amazing ideas and we, we want to think big because ultimately we need to know where we're going in order to get there, mm -hmm. right? But there's a process to getting there. So I think setting realistic expectations should be added to the nonprofit recipe and then networking. Mm -hmm. I heard you say networking. That is huge because nobody knows who we are just yet when we're first getting started and even in the first few years. So we have to network. We got to share the mission and the story to as many people as possible. And we can still do that in this virtual setting right now. There are some virtual rooms that we need to be in sharing the mission. So I think that's enough for the recipe because we got two <laughs> ingredients so far. We got a whole, we got a combo over here. We got to go. <laughs> Put it, throw in a little something, everything. We got right, some of everything. Um, so I'm just going to recap. We got um, the needs assessment, solid board of directors, programs, uh, consistency, which equal, equates to visibility, systems, realistic expectations, and network. I think that is awesome. Okay, so you know I call you the program queen because you are. So can you tell us how a new organization or even someone who's looking to start a nonprofit, how do they create this first pilot program? And I think you would agree with me that everything should be piloted first before it's open to the masses because we need to work out some things, but how do we even begin to create the program? And I know that the needs assessment is gonna give us some results. So where do we go from there? Yeah, so you, you, you definitely need to pilot. When you haven't done this before, you, you gotta try it to make sure it works, right? Before you put it out there and, 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 and start bringing people in to what you're doing. So the, I like you know, evidence-based versus evidence-influenced programs. Evidence-based means that somebody out here in the world has done this before. They've already done it. They, they know that it works. Most of that, like depending on you know, what you're doing, you might find data from CDC. You might find research peer-reviewed articles and stuff that you find online about what you're doing. Especially when you know something like mentoring programs, there's like stuff everywhere, transitional programs. There's, there's data and there's research that's already been done, right? So you're, if, let's say you're gonna do something evidence-based, you're gonna use something that's already been created, which is cool. In order to make your program stand out from those, you wanna make sure that you wanna identify what's missing. You know, what could they have done better and how can we do this? I'm gonna give an example of a program that I did um, a couple years, well, a few years ago now um, in HIV. So there was, a, there was a program that was being done in Washington, D.C. around cardiovascular health, right? And we know that women like to go to the beauty salons and just talk about stuff. So this particular program brought women into the beauty salon and talked to them about cardiovascular health, heart health, you know, stress and things like that. And then gave them these compacts, like, you know, you're in the beauty salon, so you're trying to make yourself beautiful. So they gave them these compacts with little makeup kit foundations and stuff like that in there, right? And so I'm reading this research and I'm like, you know, this would be really cool because we need to talk, we need to educate women about reproductive health and about HIV risk. You know, this is just Ty's brain just kind of just going all over here, you know, just uh -huh. relating that together. So what I did was I took that program because now it's evidence-based. There's, there's evidence in what happened in DC to show that women who were together at this salon, and there was other research behind that, were more likely to talk about things that affected them on a personal level, right? Because this is kind of where we got our social support from. 
because of that, I decided, well, you know what? Let's go to the salons locally and see if we could get these uh, beauty salon owners to let us come in on Mondays when the salon is closed so it doesn't interfere with their business. And, the, and we can bring in women to talk about HIV and HIV-related stuff and reproductive health stuff. And we can also give them this little compact thing. Mm -hmm. But in our compact, because we're talking about HIV, we're going to have safe sex kit stuff. We're going to mm -hmm. have that in there. We're going to have makeup and all that kind of stuff too. But we're going to have something in here that's relevant to what we're talking about, right? And so it worked. So we ended up talking about pilot. We knew that there were, you know, so many salons in our area. We knew we couldn't touch everybody. We're in Metro Birmingham, so that's pretty big, right? We had to find out what the cases, what, you know, how many cases of HIV among African-American women existed in our, in our community. That's at the Alabama Department of Public Health website. So we had to do this research first. And you have to do this too when you're trying to, find, trying to pilot. Whatever your problem, the problem is that you're trying to solve, you got to realize how big the problem is in your area. So how big is this? This is going to make it relevant to you. So it may not be necessarily how big it is on a, on a global level, because we already know you can't touch the globe, but how big is it in your area where you're serving? How big is this problem? Now we know based on my, my, you know, what the problem is, what my capacity is. So in my organization that I was working for, we knew that we only had four outreach members, right? So we couldn't, if there are 40,000 people, I cannot possibly get all of them to teach, to reach 10,000 people each, right? So we're just like, we only got four outreach members and we only have in our little radius that we could travel to right now, we only have five salons that we could possibly reach out to. So we know we can't get this large number. So the calculations would be based on where these five salons are, what are the numbers there? So we're, we're, every time we look at the research, we're making our little group smaller and smaller. So we go from this is the problem on the national level to this is the problem on the state level to this is a problem on the community level. Now this is what the problem looks like in this five salon radius, right? So we got so many, we have so many people that we can serve within this five salon radius, we got four people that can serve these people, right? So based on what that looked like in the community, we knew that number is now looking more like a thousand people, right? It looks more like a thousand. We've only identified five salons. So if we look at these five salons and we divided this up, now we're looking at serving, you know, possibly 200 people at each salon. But because our next level of best, based on our capacity in the size of the salons, we can't get 200 people in the salons, right? We know just from doing research that 100 people is a power number for statistics. If we can serve 100 people, we're gravy, but if we wanna serve more than that, we look at what the capacity of the salons are with the goal going into the salon that we're gonna do 200 people, right? Having that goal, we know that based on five salons, we could easily get 200 people to spread us across, you know, uh, you know, across five and we'll still meet the 100 person goal, but we're aiming for 200 people. It ended up that, you know, based on our calculations in our, in our power, we have four people. We could have at 100, everybody gets 25 people at 200, everybody, we just double that number and they could easily do that. We were wondering if we had to calculate out, you know, what kind of time, if we're going to work full-time or part-time, all that kind of stuff to get in the numbers. But, you know, that's, that's more math. We don't have to get into the math right now. But that's what that looked like. At the end of the day, we ended up getting first a small piece of funding for this program. With, after we got that funding and we were able to communicate the results, we were able to talk about, you know, follow them over time with pre-tests and post-tests. During, during the pilot, this is where you develop all this stuff. Because now you get to know what's going to work, what's not going to work. We've tried it. We tried pre-test. 
it doesn't work. We need to do observational uh, data collection instead because they don't want to fill out the questionnaires. We get to work all that stuff out because pilot gives you a good space for formative evaluation. Mm -hmm. Formative evaluation is that evaluation that takes place before the actual thing really, really happens, right? So we got all this stuff that we're collecting data about. How hard is it to get into the salon? That's a whole nother grant. The grant to help me get into the salon. And this is how, I mean, and I know you didn't ask me this question, but even like during doing the pilot, figuring out what kind of problems you run into, into the, in the pilot gives you another rationale for support. So with us, it was harder to, it was hard to get more than five salons. So I made that a problem that we wanted to solve. Now I can go out to funders and say, hey, we need some incentives for these salon owners because they're telling us that they would let us come into the salon, but only if we gave them something in return. Right. So what can we give them in return? We ended up getting partners, like local partners to sponsor us to go into these salons so that we can give gift cards to the salon owners, to Sally's, to the local oh, beauty wow. So they could go and get stuff that they need to, you know, for shampoo and all this kind of stuff that they needed for their salons because we got a grants and partnerships with places like that mm. right to do that so we're offering them incentives now after we got that little first piece of money we were able to serve in five salons we were able to write this up so we in again visibility publications they are absolutely necessary don't let people tell you that they're not we were able to write this up you know get some media attention because of the work we were doing in the salon and then we were able to write for a bigger grant. We ended up getting like hundreds of thousands of dollars for the same little salon project just to bring, and it was from different funders. Um, what I always did was never stop at one grant for one program. Right. You want to look into the program and you want to identify sub programs that might come from that program and how you can expand from that program. So for us, going into the salon, that was number one. You know, having incentives for the salon owners, that was number two. We were providing HIV education, so that's number three. You got three different grants already, right, for, for these three different things, right, for education is specific. You have people who had problems with transportation getting there on a Monday, um, even though, you know, they got there any other time they wanted to have the bus, you know, have the thing, they get on the bus, whatever they wanted to do. But even having um, incentives that we were able to attract money for a bus fare and things like that, that came in whatever problems that you saw arise as you're doing the pilot study, you end up developing sub programs from that, right? So you're like your sub initiatives and services that you provide. So we ended up doing HIV testing and all that kind of stuff, bringing people back to our, our organization. But the purpose of the program was to provide this education to these women who were at the salons, make them aware of their HIV risk. So it's not just we're just there talking to them we're raising their awareness we're doing something we're raising their awareness after their awareness is raised then they came back to our organization to be tested for hiv which is what we wanted to do we wanted to increase hiv testing so they came back to be tested for hiv after they were tested for hiv we provided them with hiv counseling so now we're hoping to reduce their risk now that they're going to go out and they're going to behave however they're going to behave they're gonna come back every three months to test for HIV. And hopefully they're also gonna report to us that their risk behaviors are lower because of the counseling that we provide. So we just walked them through an entire thing that started at the salon. Right, exactly, that's the thing. And that's just how one small vision can just grow. You started with one very small act of meeting in five salons. You identified mm -hmm. how 
you wanted to deliver the services and for you it was just education and awareness which all of us can start at at that very basic level of just knowledge and i always mm -hmm. tell my clients when you're thinking about your pilot program what is easily implementable but delivers immediate impact that's education mm -hmm. right depending mm -hmm. on who you're serving and what are they challenged by so i think that is a testament to starting small because you realize that the salon owners needed something you didn't you didn't plan for that initially in your pilot program right so what your pilot program also should have is contingency plans like what happens if something goes wrong the transportation may have become an issue what is the solution for that so it just kind of snowballs into this amazing vision that you all receive funding for so piloting a program is the very first step in realizing what your program is going to be and ultimately it's probably going to be your signature program that when people see you or hear about you they already know immediately that they're connected to this particular program um, that you have kind of branded um, so that's an amazing story and um i hope that everyone is able to take away those little nuggets i have my notes here as well but and you talked about awareness you know at new organizations that's kind of where you want to be like the grassroots because you, you really don't have the capacity or the power to do much else until you start to attract at this initial level. Mm -hmm. And I tell people who are always looking for funding and grant money, I'm like, oh, you, you know, if Walmart is going to give you $2,500, you can't pay anybody's salary with that. Right. You know, that's, not, that's not salary money. But what you can do is raise awareness and increase knowledge. So when you're writing these grants, and, you're, and this is why a lot of times we're getting rejected to for grant funds because we're asking for the wrong thing and it doesn't fit into the funder's scope mm -hmm. of funding mm -hmm. um what you're asking because you're, you're asking for that five-year vision that five-year strategic plan but right now your capacity and your next level of best is right here at the one to three right so you're asking them you might ask walmart for twenty five hundred dollars and when they're reading your proposal you're like i want to pay salary for so and so and we're gonna we're gonna decrease substance abuse and they're like how can you possibly do that with this twenty five hundred dollars you can't do it right so right. not that your proposal was bad or that you your grant writer sucked they're just writing for the wrong thing so at that level when you know that you're i'm only gonna get twenty five hundred dollars max from walmart what can I do with $2,500? I can do something short term. I can raise awareness. I can increase knowledge. I can educate. I can do that with $2,500. So when you're proposing, that's what you propose to do with them. Short term outcomes. It's all a part of that program system where you're talking about inputs, outputs, you know, that, that kind of thing. You're doing, this is short term. What are your short term goals? I'm going to give you $2,500. What can you do with that? So how can my program raise awareness? How can my program increase knowledge? When you're moving up, and just going back to my, my example of the, the group that I work with um, for, the, for the HIV and the salons, we're, initially we're going in there to increase knowledge. We're bringing them in, we're bringing the people in, we're talking to them about HIV, we're talking to them about their HIV risk. So that first little $5,000 grant from Gilead Pharmaceuticals was just that. That's all I can do with these five salons is raise awareness and increase knowledge that's that's about all i can do and maybe if they let me we can buy some cc's pizza or something and we can and we can do that <laughs> if they allow that right when the next piece when the next opportunity came for me to be at my next level of best in this program i had to show new capacity to do something different so now when i'm going to johnson and johnson and asking them for fifty thousand dollars 
they're going to want to see something different than raising awareness and increasing not because now we're asking for more money so now i'm going to get johnson and johnson to know that i am changing behavior with this fifty thousand dollars so now i'm proposing to johnson and johnson based on what we did over here in the salon to increase awareness and to increase knowledge i know now that we can change behavior because during this raising awareness of whatever we're inviting them back to come to our facility to be tested for hiv and we've started to give them pre and post test counseling about hiv or whatever they are now giving us information about whether or not they are continuing to participate in high risk behavior all based on this knowledge that we gave them information and we say that if you're at high, if you keep on doing this you're at high risk you know whatever whatever we, we do this on a repeated cycle raising awareness now we get to see whether or not what we've been telling them actually changed the behavior that they are going out there to do mm -hmm. so if not we're like, okay well can you pay for some tests so we can know that can we put them into some type of uh counseling programs to, to show them how to avoid high-risk high situations can i pay somebody a part-time salary to do this so this is why i'm asking you for fifty thousand dollars because twelve thousand of this is going to help my outreach worker who's going to be going out here and she's going to be out here in the streets and she's going to be identifying women who are at high risk for hiv she's going to be recruiting them to our program she's going to be bringing them back for hiv testing she's going to offer pre and post test counseling and she's going to talk to them about how to reduce their hiv risk behavior she's going to show them what to do so that they won't they'll reduce their risk so now i can tell johnson and johnson that we also reduce risk and they're paying us to reduce risk they're paying for us to have a part-time salary for somebody who's going to be instrumental in the risk reduction right and then a step up i remember when i when i stopped working with that organization i got an email and they said the, the united states um surgeon general is talking about this project that y'all did i'm like for real like i'm like all, all on the floor right like are you serious they're talking <laughs> i got the t-shirt you talking about t-shirts i got the t-shirt the t-shirt is faded now but i got the t-shirt and everything i'm like oh my gosh are you for real the, the united states surgeon general tweeted about this project and about what was going on in the salons surrounding this project in our area so that was that was real cool but anyway in order to get that level of involvement and to get that level of funding that came from the attention that we got from there we had to change people's situations right so you're going from raising you're going from raising awareness and knowledge to you know from increasing awareness and knowledge to changing behavior to now changing situations and that situational change would be the data that is reflected by the alabama department of public health that says in these areas where we had these high risks of hiv and these these increased cases two years ago that is going down right and we know that this is going down because there's some things that have happened in this area within two years and one of these things is that this program over here started this beauty project and we know from the data that we're collecting that people who are going to this beauty project are also coming over here and they're continuing to test negative for hiv and they're continuing to communicate that their risk behaviors are low right so we have that going on in our project we can report this to the united states you know to cdc or whoever nih wherever this grant came from sam so i can't even remember where the grant came from at the large level at that point we were also making connections with other organizations that were doing things to help us fill in some gaps so we started to identify more and more things that our population needed we started to identify facts like these women who were participating in our program were also substance abusers right so we wanted to get we wanted to get partnerships with the substance abuse 
um, facility across town and we wanted to start to, to refer them over there. So being in these kind of partnerships helps us to write larger grants where we're like, okay, we're changing their situation because maybe they're at risk for HIV because they're also on drugs. Mm. And so if we get them over here to the substance abuse people and we form a partnership with them, let's write a million dollar, actually it was a $4 million grant with them to get this money. And we can send these women who are in our, uh, in our beauty salon spot over there to substance abuse counselor because we didn't do substance abuse counseling. We can write this fund, these funds together and now we can pay for some full-time staff to do some things. Yeah, so that's how you go from zero <laughs> to 100. Real literally, quick, right? <laughs> literally, real quick. <laughs> that's an excellent startup story. If we can just shift really quick, I want to talk about mindset. Okay. And I think what you've been talking about correlates to this in that we have to go into our programming, our structure, our strategy, how we're going to fund our mission with the right mindset. And that starts from the very beginning and with the planning process and just realizing how things can, can flourish and grow. What is a healthy, sustainable mindset for a nonprofit founder? What, you know, what ideals or expectations do they need to come to the table with from the very beginning that will help them to create a successful environment? Yeah, I, I think number one is that the understanding that is not about you as an individual that it is all about them it's all about the people that you serve it's all about what they need and, and you're just an instrument you're just a you're just a little piece of the puzzle that's going to help make this happen because some you know when we get into the thing where we're thinking that it's all about us and we get you know we get territorial about it we start making decisions that only affect us and we don't and we don't make the right decisions for the community i mean i've had a ton of founders come to me just this year who say i'm gonna i'm gonna leave my position as ed because we'll have a lot of founders who are also ed especially when you start executive director or ceo mm -hmm. especially when you're starting up you're like okay i'm the founder i'm the executive director i'm the secretary i'm the program director i'm the all of that stuff right y'all you just gotta be everything right it's gonna be everything <laughs> yeah and, and that's another thing don't try to be everything learn how to delegate because once you do that, you got to think about the sustainability of the organization and what's going to happen if something happens to you. This is not about you. It's not yours. So if something happens to you, who is going to be able to run with the organization? You got to think about that. But I've, I've had a lot of founders come to me in the past, you know, just since COVID has been around to say, I'm, not, I'm no longer going to be the executive director. I want to step down because where the organization's vision is, I think it'll be better and it'll, it'll get there more effectively if I wasn't in the picture. And I have to agree with him and oh, say that so, it is. Oh, hold, hold on a second. So <laughs> <laughs> you're like, what? I see you. Okay, hold on. Front. Wait a minute. And not that that's not uncommon, but you know, we have the scenario where you're the founder and you've also assumed the title of executive director so that you can run the day to day, day to day operations. But that's a big deal to really come to the realization that, hey, I'm not the right person for this. Yes, I'm the founder and, you know, mm -hmm. the visionary, but I'm not the right person to lead the organization. That's a huge mindset shift. And I have mm -hmm. to applaud that person or anyone who takes that stance because as you say, it's not about us as founders. It is about the community that we're trying to serve. And as an organization, we have to do what's best for the community. So mm -hmm. that is huge. Mm -hmm. You're like, wait a minute, girl, because I look, I don't know. <laughs> and and you, we have this thing, we have people who are coming in and they, and they go, especially at, at the ground zero level, and they go, 
can you can you make it possible for me not to be able to be removed by my board because they and they want to hold on like so tight it's like okay i don't want to i'm never gonna go you know but what does that mean for the community that not, you know you may not have to go but what does that mean for the vision of the organization if if there came a, a, a time where you really needed to go because you were stunting the growth of the organization mm -hmm. if you are reluctant and you're kicking and screaming and you not and you're not trying to go when you really really know that you should then you are doing more to hurt the organization than you are to help it right right and right. it's not about you it's about those people that you serve and a lot of times you know we get we get tired and we get burned out and that doesn't mean that you should quit and you know and, and just relinquish your position as ceo because you're tired and burned out but it should give you an opportunity to reflect and and decide you know is this what i'm supposed to be maybe i'm just the vision maybe i'm supposed to go around the country and start multiple nonprofit organizations and that just be it hmm. starting them doesn't necessarily mean you have to be the person to be in the leadership position of executive director you may be the visionary. This may be your calling to just go out and set up a hundred different organizations with your vision and, 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 and go somewhere. I don't even know who the, some of the largest organizations in the world, I don't know who the founders are. Mm, yeah, I, and, and they're not the same person as the executive director right now. I don't, I, I couldn't tell you who founded it without doing some research and figuring it out. But a lot of times we try to stay, stay too connected. Right. Yeah. So going into that, so a healthy mindset is understanding your strengths and your weaknesses and knowing when to kind of bow out. That's, that's mm -hmm. kind of what I heard. And, and that's not always the case, but even in those areas where you're not as strong, when you're building your team and volunteers and paid staff, you want to build that team based around, you know, what you're not naturally good at so that they can bring, you just don't want to do. <laughs> right, right, right. So they can bring value, you know, to the table. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about you as an actual consultant. You've been giving us lots and lots of nuggets for our nonprofit founders out there. But for those who are looking to get into the industry and serve nonprofits as a consultant, as a professional, what advice would you give those individuals? Can I be country and say it is, it ain't for the week, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're for Alabama, I, I know. Come on, come on with that. It ain't, right? Because consultancy in itself, and it, it really depends on what you have coming into it, you know? Um, for me, it was, I, I kind of started slow in consulting. I was, I was consulting hustling, right, on the side of my, of my online uh, teaching stuff. Yeah, I had a couple on ground, but I was doing mostly online. I started consulting on, this, on the side. But once I got into consulting, um, like seriously, I realized that it wasn't for the, it wasn't as fancy as, as a lot of people mm. want to put. There's no overnight nothing. Right? right, you know, I I made a whole lot more money teaching at these thirteen schools than I initially made consulting, y'all. I was like, Lord, are you sure this is what you want me to be doing? Because you know, these streets ain't loyal at all. Period. Right. So, <laughs> so, so getting out here and identifying, um, you know, where my strengths were because, you know, and and people tell you, you know, to niche down. You don't necessarily have to niche down, but you want to find where your strongest and where your mojo is you know jamila calls me the program queen because i like programs more than anything else i can do a whole lot of stuff but i feel less stressed when i'm in programs mm -hmm. i feel that hey my energy is up i can do this in my sleep you can ask me a question on the fly i got you we're good 
no, doing that um, has kind of been what's been like financially like the turnaround being okay I can I can get it here and this is what I can do and I can do it well and I can do it with ease it doesn't feel like a job you know that kind of thing if you're getting into consultancy just understand that it's it's not overnight you want to be able to position yourself to attract the right kind of people I know starting out I was just open to anything I'm like look y'all I got to eat I got some I, the baby needs some Similac whoever y'all, whatever y'all want to do, I'm, I'm down for it. Like, look, give me that, right? Just give me that. Um, but coming into a space where you really get to make the decisions. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people forget about when they get burned out in consultancy is that you can decide who you want to work with. Yeah, you know, that's, you can that's make a, a big one. That's yeah. a big one. Because we, we do start out, and I'll speak from, you know, experience or be transparent here in that, First off, there's a confidence issue when you're just getting started because mm -hmm. while you think you're great and you're able to deliver until mm -hmm. you actually see the results of your work, you still have that confidence right. issue. So then you're just like, okay, well, let me just, you know, assist anyone to do anything. And then you start to kind of mm -hmm. lose who you are and your mission. Um, so I think it's important that we find what our niche is. And mm -hmm. I know you write grants and you know you do the program development and you do many other things, but I actually brought you a couple of grants before and you were like, nah, I don't wanna do that. I, I, wanna, <laughs> I wanna go over it, I wanna stick and to it. And I hate it, it's like, look, I have $70 million in grants and I hate writing grants. And that's a shame, that's, that's a really shame. a shame. Because, because I was, because I had to do it, right? It's like, this is what right. I had to do, but that's not where my, where I have fun. And so now in my old age, and I keep saying my older, my older age, I'd rather do what I feel to be fun. Like when I'm doing it, I don't want it to be something that I, that I got to, you know, and, and for, for people who are, can't afford grant writing, and this is another thing. I mean, this is why I kind of steered away from it a whole lot, because when you're grassroots and you're brand new, small nonprofit organizations, the, the, even what I'm charging you for grant writing, you probably can't afford it, you know, a lot of times. Mm -hmm. When I'm going to write for a university or I'm going to write for an established organization, they got $5,000. Right off the bat, they give me five. For you, for, for smaller organizations, when I'm asking you for $5,000 to write this fund, this proposal for you, if you're not highly competitive and you don't get the funds, you could have taken that $5,000 and put it into your program. Right. You, you really could have done that. Um, one thing that I, I always exercise is that I never write for anybody who I don't think is at least close enough, close to being competitive enough for the funds. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do that. And, I, and I'll get a lot of new nonprofits who are mad at me for not taking their, for not taking their, um, oh, you don't want the money? You know, that kind of thing. Look, look, that's not the thing. If you do not have these baseline prerequisites for grants, I'm not going to write the grant for you because I already know I'm, I've, I write grants. I review grants. I already know that you're not competitive enough for this fun, these funds. So I can deny you as a client for grant writing if that's what I wanted to do, because you're not ready for this. Or if we just don't mess, you know, I got, I got one of these weird Alabama personalities, right? And some, and I just don't, everybody don't like me. Like, I don't like everybody. It's just, like, just going to put it out there like that. And so, and a lot of times you can, you can kind of discern that early on, whether or not it's going to be a good working relationship. If, you know, and it's not all about me either. Sometimes you can talk to me like, I don't, I don't want to work with her. That's, and that's perfectly okay. And I, I know early on, I wanted to please everybody. So if there's somebody who did not want to work with me, I took it personally. Like, why, why didn't they, 
you know, especially you go on Facebook, it's like, I offer her the same service. And now she's on Facebook celebrating somebody else for doing this for her. Why didn't they get, because she wasn't mine. And, you know, and, and, and it's okay. You can go over here and do that. Before I got on Facebook, I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread, right? Because I'm like, I'm the only one who know how to do this stuff right here. And I do it good, right? I got on Facebook and it's like, Jamila out there, you got like... <laughs> I'm like, where did where did people come from? What they like? I'm not, I'm not yeah. the only one out yeah, here. It's, it's more than just you. So that's why yeah. we have to find our own lane and just operate mm -hmm. in our lane. You know, over the past six years, I've kind of niched down to the board development piece of it because mm -hmm. a lot of boards with amazing visions and amazing founders and the vision is there. It's just, you know, sometimes it's just that lack of education on the board side and what they're mm -hmm. supposed to do and you know, they fail if the if the board is not healthy, then the nonprofit is not healthy. So we have mm -hmm. to find our lane and just, you know, trust that every client is not your client. Um, your clients are not meant to be there for the entire time. You know, this thing that we do, it's seasonal, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's a season to everything that we do, but as long as we are imparting benefits and they can take the knowledge and they can implement it, um, that's what's most important. Um, so along those same lines, how does servitude play a role in the nonprofit consultant work? Yeah. Because regardless of whether you are on side A, where you are a nonprofit organization and serving the community or on side B, where you're a consultant serving nonprofits, you hear the same word, you're mm -hmm. serving. So mm -hmm. how does that play a role in the consultant work for you? Yeah, and, and for me, I think that that kind of goes back to the core. And, and servitude can be a positive and a negative, depending on how you're looking at it, right? Yeah, that's true. For me, I think the core reason why I started consulting was because of wanting to be able to serve, but also wanted to be able to get paid, right? So I was like, okay, yeah, I, can't, that part. <laughs> I can't be volunteering. I'm like, uh, I remember my very first job in admissions in, in college and my my admissions boss was like go volunteer in your major and I was like no ma'am I can't volunteer I got to I got to get paid so I went over there to get work done you know whatever but the same place here so you know but it all goes back to service and I feel like a piece of my purpose is to serve and that I can do that through consultancy because instead of me having to go out and, and individually serve 2,000 people if your organization serves 200 I'm serving 200 just by communicating with you Mm -hmm. with one person right but i've helped change the lives of this many people just by interacting with the executive director and helping you to get your program together so i feel like that is like that's really big on the negative side of servitude sometimes as a consultant you can kind of become enslaved to the process mm -hmm. especially starting out i mean there was there were times starting out where I was just tired. It's like, okay, if you, especially when you get into like a rhythm and you can attract people, but then you feel like you don't know how to draw the line between customer service and being enslaved because there is a thin line between the two. You want to always deliver top quality customer service because guess what? Those customers are going to tell somebody else. They're going to tell somebody else. That's how you're going to get business. That's how you're going to eat, right? But you might have, you know, I, I remember having my phone number out, my cell phone number, you know, and folks texting me and calling me at 11, 12, 1, 33 a.m. Hmm. in the morning, like, Ty, it's an emergency. I'm like, oh, what is the emergency? And then I get on the, and they go, oh, I, ca I can't find the, the paper that you sent me with my EIN number on it. Can you send it back to me? What? This is not, can we wait? <laughs> and I'm like, and because I did not want to lose them, I'm going to respond. 
-hmm. right right away immediately and then if you get into a situation where they that you you get something and you don't respond immediately then there's a problem because now you've gotten them accustomed to you responding in the middle of the night so when the next middle of the night comes and you're like okay i'm not going to respond and then the next day it's like oh my gosh why didn't i why didn't you respond to me last night at 2 a.m so you want to make sure you set those boundaries early on because if you don't you're going to get burned out and you're going to want to quit and then you, again you have to also know who you're wanting to attract what it's going to take for you to be able to survive these are things that i learned along the way i didn't know this you know five years ago when or six years ago when when type enterprises became a real thing I didn't, didn't know about boundaries or how to set them. All I knew was somebody told me I can start a business, I can attract clients based on what it is I know how to do and what I know how to do well, and then I can call it a day, you know? Mm -hmm. But setting, setting boundaries early on, um, you know, even being that my boundaries was kind of set kind of late, I'm glad that I now realize that boundaries are a thing. Boundaries <laughs> are a thing, and I just realized that in the last year, because I too was, mm -hmm answering emails at two o'clock in the morning. So if they were up, mm -hmm. they were responding. And then I think mm -hmm. this is also the customer service side of me, which mm -hmm. I've been in for 20 years. And I'm like, you know, you, you got to deliver, you got to show up, you have to uh -huh. excellence in service. So that means you mm -hmm. answer the email at any time of the hour. And I had to finally take a step back and say, no, this is not healthy, one. Mm -hmm. And two, you're setting the wrong expectation for yourself and mm -hmm. for your clients because then mm -hmm. you don't want them to get accustomed to it and then they go to the next consultant they're like no right. these are my hours <laughs> nine to five and then they get mad like well when i went over there she did hers like what i've started doing because a lot of times what i'll do is especially if i'm writing and, and things like that i'll have days that i'm doing writing and stuff or things that i days that i just really don't want to talk to people right it's like because i can't really work if i'm not you know if i'm talking all the time um, but uh, what I've started doing now for my major pro projects, if I'm having to send out email, is that if I'm sending an email on a Saturday, for example, I'll time it and I'll put send on Monday, even though I'll go ahead and type it. It's, it's like, okay, send this on Monday so that the client doesn't think that I'm up here on Saturday at 2 a.m. sending an email because it's just natural instinct to say, okay, if she responded to me at 2 a.m., then she must be awake. So let me respond back. And then we start this you know, and then you have families and things. And I'm like, okay, I know my, at one point, my kids were like, yeah, because mama just does nonprofits. Like they don't, like they, <laughs> they don't know mommy for anything yeah. else. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, my baby, he's six now, but like he used to be, mama, she just does nonprofit. Are you talking to nonprofit? Like, he's like, that's it. It doesn't right. matter who I'm talking, what time is it? So I wanted them to know that I, there's more than that one dimension to me, you know, having this, this phone and this computer. <laughs> coming out my ear all the time right exactly yeah that's good that's a good tip to schedule your emails and i think a lot of platforms are allowing you to do that i know gmail allows you to do that and i believe mm -hmm. outlook allows you to do that as well yeah, a mm -hmm. great tip that i'm going to take away as well so it has been amazing chatting with you and we i still haven't covered everything that i wanted to yeah cover, but we're gonna but, do like a five-part series later on I know right I mean. we do need that <laughs> five-part series so everybody this is part one i'm definitely gonna have her back because i know that we have a lot more ground to cover but in our closing here do you have any upcoming classes or programs that our guests and listeners can find you on social media and register for yeah, the, uh, my big thing right now is my partnership with Urban Awareness USA. You're probably aware of them already. I have a program with them um, called Retain My Brain. We're moving in October 1st, we're moving to Retain My Brain 2.0. Okay. And this is huge. I have a, I have a team um, that, that actually helps me with Retain My Brain. But Retain My Brain it offers micro, mini um, type grant uh, applications every month. 
to nonprofit organizations. Um, we just kind of, we're going to, October 1st, we're going to just do them automatically every month. Um, also, there's what I call capacity cram. Twice a week, I'm coming in to educate about parts of grant proposals that I see people missing all the time. So that's like the program part, the evaluation part, the budget part, and how to create a really good case for support and rationale. That's like what's always missing. So twice a week, we're doing that. Um, I also do something in there called a lightning round where people who are members can come in and ask any questions about development that they might have. This is a really super cool thing. I mean, and it's really, really affordable um, for nonprofits. The, you know, the, the regular price of that is $249 a month, but it's like $149 right now on sale a month um, that we do. But it's, I think that for grassroots organizations, it's the best possible way to get in with some consultancy um, on a low level of investment, you know, and get the best bang for your book. Um, I do not have any any classes and i'm surprised i do not have any classes going on during this COVID thing i might need to get one you let yeah, me know what y'all need I think, so. <laughs> I think so we'll get some feedback from the listeners and, and see what they want to hear from you uh so last couple of things is where can we find you on social media and i would like to know what is one major nugget that you would like for the audience to take away from this conversation today okay major nugget i would say you know start your programs small Think about the, the one to three year vision in opposed to the five year. What can you do now with the resources that you already have? And I tell people, your biggest resource is you. So a lot of people kind of stand still because I don't have any help, I don't have any staff. What is it that you have right now? I don't have any housing, but you have, your, you have your mouth, you can talk, you can network, right? If you're doing something like supportive care services, you're basically providing a network, providing a system, you're, you're referring people out. This is something that you could do to gain some momentum and attract some numbers into your organization so that when the funder is looking at what you've done and what have your success been, been with this in the past, that's the first question you get on a grant application. Um, you know, what has your success been with this in the past? Who have you served? And you're like, nobody, because we're brand new if you would turn that around to something that you could easily do within the resources that you have right now that can change from nobody to 100 people really really quickly mm -hmm. because we're referring them over here to these supportive services and then we're just following up with them to make sure that they actually got into the services right so we're doing this and you just recycle that whole thing and you're creating a program just from that right there without having a whole lot without having the staff that you've got to pay you're just getting your numbers going and now when you're starting to write for grants you can you can talk about these numbers and you can talk about the need if you're referring out a thousand people then there's a need for a thousand people to be referred out mm -hmm. and now you can fill that need okay that's that's the that's the big point just start where you are with the resources that you have what can you do today that's it within your for what you're doing what, what's the message that you're trying to get out right now if you're trying to raise awareness if you're trying to increase knowledge you can do that today you can jump on the podcast with jamila and increase knowledge today that's what i mean that's what you're doing today right do that um you can reach me on facebook at tyboon enterprises that's my facebook page um i also have a group on facebook called Nonprofit success with ty i'm on instagram at tyboon llc and i'm also on linkedin at takisha boom that right. is me. Well, well, thank you, Ms. Ty, for joining us this evening. I'm so excited to uh, hear the feedback and looking forward to scheduling you in for sessions two, three, four, and five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. We'll chat soon. All right. Thank you. You're welcome.
Well, that's our show. Thanks for joining me tonight. I hope that you have been inspired, educated, and motivated to fulfill your mission. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at jamilakempconsulting.com. Make sure you subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Leave us an awesome rating if you wouldn't mind and a comment. Until next time, continue to do good.